Today's Bible reading is Obadiah. If you have the church Bible, it's on page 1433. Otherwise, it's between Amos and Jonah in the Old Testament. Obadiah, starting at verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, and let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home in the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Taman, will be terrified and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, you will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should, not match, sorry, you should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be, my deliv will be deliverance. It will be holy and the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau will be stubble, and they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. 
Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, Keep your finger there, because I think if you close your Bible, you'll lose it. So have Obadiah open, we'll pray, and then we'll get into this. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you um, that as we read, you are the sovereign God. You're the God that made all that we see, and you're the God that governs it all. And so this morning, as we come before you, sovereign God, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that as we hear your word, that we would be challenged and changed and encouraged and equipped, and that as we leave here this morning, we would be different people than the people as we came in. We'd be people set on fire by who you are and what you've done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I, I, I hate learning things the hard way. And I feel like for me it happens more than it should. And it normally costs something as well. But the problem with it is it, it normally always comes down to ignorance. Um, so I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it, it, it happened to me a few years ago um, with my teeth, actually. So uh, I grew up hearing what everyone else heard that brushing your teeth is important and so is flossing your teeth. But I just ignored the second bit. It was my ignorance. I ignored the fact that flossing your teeth really mattered. And so I brushed my teeth. I had to learn a hard lesson though. And so a few years ago, I went to the dentist and uh, they looked at my teeth, looked good, um, looked clean, until of course they x-rayed it and found that there were 12 fillings in my mouth all between my teeth. My, my ignorance had cost me, and so I had to embarrassingly go back again and again and again and get my holes filled, every single one of them between my teeth. It was my ignorance. Now, I feel like half of the population of Australia, the world, ignores that flossing is important. Um, my, my ignorance cost me in that, but see, it didn't cost me that much. I mean, in terms of life, ultimately, didn't didn't actually cost me that much. I mean, there are some things in life where your ignorance costs you, but not that much. You know? So here's what I mean, like with filling up your car with fuel, that's something where your ignorance can cost you, but ultimately not that much. But there are other things in life, other places in life where your ignorance can cost you and, and the cost can be devastating. So, so things like wearing a seatbelt, if you're ignorant of why that's important, it can be a devastating cost. Things like speeding, if you're ignorant why it's important to, to go the speed limit, the, the cost can be devastating. Things like, as we've seen in America, pretty much constantly, gun safety, right? There are things in life where your ignorance can cost you and the cost can be devastating. Now, now this morning, as we gather here today and as we kind of come before God's word, what we're going to see is that one of those things where our ignorance can cost us and, and the cost can be devastating is actually, it's got to do with our faith. It's got to do with Christianity, of why it's important. And so as we come here this morning, as we come before Obadiah, we're going to be asking of this book, why is Christianity, why is the, our faith, why does it matter? And what's the cost going to be if we're ignorant of this? So, so have your Bibles there. Have them open in Obadiah. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. Uh, it fits in along the minor prophets, which are just small prophecies. I guess they're called minor because they're smaller than the bigger ones. They're not just short prophets. Um, but but that Obadiah fits in that between Amos and Jonah, as Beck said. And, and really what we see in this book is why Christianity, Christianity matters, why this is important and and why we can't afford to be ignorant. So have them open there. We'll pick it up from verse 1. This is what God's word says. The, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. 
We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise and let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me to the ground, though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So, so Obadiah starts with the danger of sin. We, we see that pretty clearly here. But to fully understand what's going on here, we've got to understand the, the history of what's taking place in this book. So um, if we track back about 1,300 years, uh, uh, there's a birth that takes place in Genesis 25 between Isaac and Rebekah. And God says of this, there's twins, she's about to give birth to twins, and God says of those twins, um, that within this, it's, it's 23 if you want to look it up at home, if that's what you want to do. Um, of these twins, that these will grow up, they will be nations and there'll be conflict between each other. And so what you get there is you get Jacob and then you get Esau. Jacob becomes Israel. Uh, Esau becomes Edom. And they don't get along, right? There is sibling rivalry stepped up. So I understand sibling rivalry. I had three older brothers. I get what it means to be in competition basically all the time, right, about, you know, who can brush your teeth the fastest. Maybe that's why um, I had problems with my teeth. Um, but, but things like, you know, in cricket, who can score the most runs, and ultimately if you don't score, you've got to do the dishes. I, I get sibling rivalry, but between these two, it's, it's that stepped up a notch. Jacob steals his brother's birthright. It goes on and on and on, and, and it just continues. And so we get Israel and Edom, established nations. 1,300 years later, we enter the story, and Edom here, as we meet here, they are proud from what they've achieved. They think, as their pride has deceived them, verse 3, that's their, the, the big thing here, they are proud from what they do. And really, the kind of definition of pride is this idea that the world revolves around you. And so they are proud for their location, for their wealth, for all these things. So Edom existed on, on the kind of top of cliffs, almost like the picture behind me. They existed there and, and, and they thought they were untouchable because of it. Thought the world revolved around them. Their wealth, they were proud of their wealth, their understanding, they were proud. They thought the world revolved around them. They thought that they were the center of the world. And, and the reality is God hates pride because pride ultimately dethrones God. If I'm the center of the world, there's no room for God in that. And so Edom are proud here. They think they're the center of the world. They think they're untouchable. Now, if we go looking for this kind of attitude today, um, it's not, we find it pretty easily. I mean, you pretty much pick of any superpower at the moment in the world, right? They think the world revolves around them. They are proud because they think they're untouchable. So take your pick, right? China, America, North Korea, Russia, at least from what we're told, whether it's real news or fake news, sending spy ships and spy planes, launching missiles into the sea, they're, they're flexing their muscle to show the world that they are the center of the world. They are proud. They think they're untouchable, these countries. The problem is, though, once we start looking for this attitude of pride, it's not too long that we start finding them not just in the hearts of nations, but actually within us. See, this attitude, pride, that, that I'm the center of the world, that the world revolves around me, spins around me, is actually within all of us. Pride leads to selfishness, this picture that I'm first, which I struggle with with my friendships and my marriage all the time. 
Pride is what leads to self-glory, boasting and bragging, lifting myself up. But it's also the opposite. So, so if I'm the center of the world, pride also leads to self-pity. So, so look how bad I'm going. Pride lies within all of our hearts. It lies, as C.S. Lewis says um, in Mere Christianity, pride is the root of all sin. And he's right. It lies beneath every sin. He says it's what sent the devil to hell. And so if we start thinking about it, we see this attitude not just in nations but within us. Pride is what sits in front of the TV instead of having conversations with our family. Pride is what wastes time at work instead of doing what we're paid to do. Pride is what gossips and speaks badly about others because, well, I'm the centre. Pride is what, what leads to every lustful thought. Pride is what leads to all of this because pride is at the root of all sin. It lies under every single thing. And the reality is, is God hates pride. God hates it. It's offensive to God. Now, now I don't know about you, but in church, I've heard this idea before, that, that pride is offensive and that it lies within us. And if you're anything like me, when we hear this, we kind of go numb towards pride, right? Like, yeah, it's a big deal, but I've heard this all before. It's kind of like what happens when we you know, watch the news over and over again and we see just horrible things and we just become numb to the news, right? And there's horrible, horrific things, but it does, it's sort of not doing anything for us. Pride's kind of like that. It, it, we hear it, but we feel numb towards it. Let, let me give you the example. I reckon this, this is what struck me this week. So um, here's the example. Uh, imagine that I've got a friend who I'm telling you about that's coming to church. Uh, he's a godly guy, I say to you. He you know, became a Christian years ago. He's a great guy. But this friend, he struggles with pride. What's your thoughts about him? What are you feeling about this mate? Right? Maybe you're excited to meet him. I don't, I don't know. But then I tell you I've got another friend. Same sort of story. Godly man, Christian guy. He's, you know, became Christian. Same story. But this guy... He's a thief. He, he struggles with theft. So, so compare those two. Which one do you want to hang out with? Because as if we're all not thinking, give me the guy who struggles with pride than the thief, right? Or at least tell me when the thief's here and I can lock my stuff in the car. right? We, we feel like, we just feel numb towards pride. And there's other things that we feel are more weightier than pride. But the reality is all throughout the Bible, pride lies at the root of all sins. It dethrones God. It puts me at the center of the universe. It sent the devil to hell and God hates it. It's offensive to God, our pride that lies deep within us, that says, I am the center of my universe. But it's not just offensive to God, which we'll talk about in a moment. It, it also has a devastating effect. Pride always destroys. It, it always divides. It always destroys. And that's actually what we see here between Edom and Israel. So we'll come back to verse 5 and 9 in a second. But for in verse 10 to 14, what we see there is the division that pride has caused between Edom and Israel. We see the division. Now, um, again, the history will help us here. So Babylon came in uh, to Israel, uh, overtook them, took them off into exile in about 570 B.C., now, Edom stood by and basically watched that happen and did nothing, right? And, and so um, if we think about it, Edom really should have helped out there, but they didn't. So it's kind of like uh, today if New Zealand, for as much smack talk as we give New Zealand, uh, so if New Zealand 
uh, got taken by some country, Australia would be the first to sort of step in and help out there, right? Like we would be. I mean, who would we have to beat in the cricket then if we didn't have New Zealand? Now, look, I get they beat us last time. It's just a joke, right? They're good at union and cricket and not much else, but they, they are good. But see, we'd still help out, right? And I love my Kiwi brothers and sisters, but, but we'd still help out. I mean, honestly, if someone came for New Zealand, Australia would be the first there stepping in to help out. This is kind of what's happening with, with Israel and with Edom, the, the older brother, the younger brother. So Israel's the older brother, the Edom's the smaller brother, but they still should help out. They should, still should get involved and stop Babylon. But instead, as we see from verse 10 to 14, they don't help out. Rather, the opposite. They, they get involved with Babylon. They sit back and do nothing. So verse 10, we see it because of their violence against Jacob. You were covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. Because on that day, you stood aloof. While strangers were carrying off, while Babylon was carrying off their wealth and foreigners entered their gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. And then we see it, right? On that day, on that day, on that day, you did nothing. You didn't help out. Instead, you got involved. Now, now why did they do this? Well, it's because if you look at their heart, pride was lying there. They did it because pride's this attitude. I'm the center of the world. Whatever is going to benefit me, I'll get involved in that. And, and so they, w w did they help Israel? No, they let them go. They got involved in plundering Israel because that is what led to their glory, to their uh, to, to what benefited them. Pride led to it. Pride always destroys. It, it always destroys. It destroys between nations and nations. It destroys between people and people. It does. So if we follow every friendship back, every family breakdown, every relationship we've ever had that has fallen apart, what lied at the heart of that was pride. Because pride is not only offensive, but it destroys, it destructs, it, it divides. But pride doesn't just divide and destroy between people and people. Pride destroys and divides between people and God. Pride is offensive to God. It is. It dethrones God. And really, this is what all sin does. Sin is not just morally when we get a cross against our name. Sin ultimately offends God. And pride lying at the heart of sin, it offends God. And we need to see this. It's not just morally that we've done something bad, that we haven't done what we should have done good. It's not just that we get this cross against our name. Sin is offensive to God. And, and even if we think about our relationships that we have, I think we understand this as well. I think we get that sin isn't just the moral thing. It's also offensive. So, so again, let me give you the example um, so, so let's say uh, my wife, Elizabeth, we've been married, she's great. Um, let's say I tell Elizabeth a secret um, and I say, please don't tell anyone that I've got 100 fillings in my mouth. I don't want anyone knowing that. I don't want people looking at my teeth. I know they're crooked. Uh, I just don't want people knowing. And so I, I say that to Elizabeth, don't tell anyone um, about my teeth, right? It's a secret there. Let's say she happens to go and tell someone, you know, that, that I went to the dentist and got some fillings in my mouth. The, the reason that's offensive to me is not really anything to do with the teeth. It's that in telling people, there's a breakdown in trust there. There's a breakdown in love there. There's a breakdown in the commitment there to each other. The reason it's offensive in that moment is not really about the teeth. It's about the offense that's caused me. It's about the love that's broken down. 
But, but let's work it the other way as well. So let's say I tell Elizabeth, please don't tell anyone about my teeth. And she does really well at that. So for the next, you know, three weeks, she doesn't, say, or forever, she doesn't say anything to anyone about my teeth. But then she ignores me for three weeks. Doesn't talk to me, doesn't look at me, ignores me for three weeks. Equally offensive, right? And so with God, it's similar. That sin's not just the moral things, the bad things we do and the good things we don't do. The reason it's bad is not just because we get a cross against our name. The reason it's bad is because it's offensive to God. It's offensive to God, saying, God, I don't, I don't care about you. I don't want you. I don't need you. I'm ignoring you in this moment because I'm the center of my world. Deep down, pride lies there saying, I don't need you, God. And I don't want you, God. And we've got to see that it's not just this moral thing. It's actually offensive to the God of the universe, to the sovereign God. And so since our actions and our attitudes have come up against the sovereign and the holy and the perfectly just God, he has to do something about that. God has to punish sin. Which is what we see in Obadiah. To Edom first, we see this. Edom are going to be punished for their sin. And so we see God's justice perfectly displayed. As we look at, we'll go back to looking at verse 5 to 9. I mean, we saw a glimpse of it in verse 4. Though you soar like eagles and make your nest among the stars, God says from there, I will bring you down. And then verse 5. If thieves came to you in the night, yeah, came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what disaster awaits you? Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. God saying, even if a thief came, they, I mean, very rarely do thieves literally steal everything. But God's saying that would be better for you than what's going to happen. You will have nothing left. Verse 7, all your allies will force you to your border, to, to the border. Your friends will deceive you and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, O Tamain, which is a, a city of Esau, city of Edom, will be terrified and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. We see here God's perfect holiness displayed as his perfect justice gives sinners exactly what they deserve and everything Edom was proud in God says I will take that from you your location you thought you could live in the cliffs you're untouchable God says I'm taking that from you your wealth God says, I'm taking that from you in verse 5 to, to 6. Verse 7, your allies that you were proud in, thinking you're untouchable, I'll take them from you. In, eight, in verse 8, your wisdom, your understanding, I'll take that from you. And then verse 9, your worries as well, your military might. Everything they were proud in, God takes away from them. God's perfect justice on display as God gives sinners what they deserve. And interestingly enough as well, we actually see in history how this took place. See, five years, that's all it took. Five years after they helped Babylon, you know, ransack Israel. Five years after Babylon came for Edom on their way to Egypt, smashed Edom. 
They, they sort of rebuilt, Edom rebuilt. Years later, the Persians came. Rebuilt in 120 uh, BC, a Jewish rebel army went for Edom again. And then finally, in 70 AD, Edom were completely wiped out as the Romans came through and destroyed. Completely gone out of history. God's perfect justice displayed as he gives sinners what they deserve. Now, now, if we were a Jewish man or woman or person as we were hearing Obadiah's words here, I think we'd actually be thankful that God is giving our enemies what they deserve. You know, it's almost like if ISIS, if we heard that ISIS were going down, we'd celebrate in that. And, and for us today, there is a, a reality here that God will not relent he, he will not be patient on the people who are persecuting God's people forever. There is a level of that here. But, but the reality is, as we see God's perfect justice on display, as we see God giving sinners what they deserve, if we can connect the dots pretty quickly, we realize that what we're reading here is not just a chilling reality for Edom, but a chilling reality for us especially considering the turn verse 15 takes see as we go to verse 15 what we see from 1 to 14 is that so far it's been all about edom but now verse 15 takes this turn where in verse 15 we see this the day of the lord is near for all nations for all nations not just for Edom anymore, but for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. We are a part of that. We are a part of the all nations. And God's justice will once again be seen as he gives sinners what they deserve. Now, the drink that, God, that, that where we hear here, the drink that he's talking about here, is what we see in the rest of the Old Testament, this cup of wrath. This language of the cup of wrath, this bitter, this horrible cup of wrath that ultimately when we drink it, it will be God's wrath on us, God's anger on us because we've offended him. And so what we, where we're left in verse 15 and 16 is with this chilling reality. We are a part of this, that God's justice will be on display as he gives us what we deserve. We've offended him. And God needs to punish that, and he will punish that. While his patience is good, it's not everlasting. And where 15 and 16 leaves us with this hopeless reality that one day we will drink and drink and be as if we had never been. We'll face the cup of wrath that we deserve. In those words there, they will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. That's chilling. That's a frightening message. And where this leaves us is with a hopeless reality that we will have to drink that cup. Our sin has come up against God. We will have to face that. Unless, unless someone somewhere, somehow, 
can drink that drink for us. See, if we follow this message, if we go into the New Testament, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the way to being whipped and flogged and beaten and ultimately killed. And he prayed this prayer three times. He said, God, if you can, take this cup from me. God, if you can, take this cup from me. Now, why did he pray that? It's because he wasn't ignorant of what was coming. He was aware that this was a bitter cup. And he didn't want to face it. He said, take this cup, God. It's possible. Father, take it from me. But God made it clear to him that there was no other way. And so Jesus went to the cross. Ultimately, he drank the cup we deserved. He drank and he drank until he was no more. I mean, this is, this is crazy. Jesus would do this. He who knew no sin became sin. Right? He went to the cross to drink the drink that we deserve. And yet Jesus did this for us so that we can know him and love him and be saved from what we deserve. I mean, we, we actually have to see how crazy this is, what God is doing for us. Right? I mean, if we think about it in our lives, how do we react when people offend us? I mean, counselors talk about it, how you either react in conflict like a rhino, you go head first at the other person because you want to take them down, or you go like a hedgehog, you retreat, you don't want to be anywhere near them. We are inbuilt, we hate offense, right? And, and we all hate being offended. Friendships, if we have friendships that have broken down over the years, I can guarantee they've come because we've been offended by the other person. Families have fallen apart because we've been offended by the other person. We hate it when people offend us. And yet we offend God. Right? And, and on top of that, we don't even care that we do. I mean, I, I feel far worse when I offend Elizabeth, when I offend my friends, than I do when I offend God. So here I am. I've offended God and I don't care about it. And yet what we get here is the fact that even in my state, God still loved me, still went for the cross, still went to the cross for me. I mean, God shows his love while we were sinners. Right? I mean, you think about it. For a perfect person, you might think about dying for them. For a good person, you might dare to die, but that's not us. We are sinful. And yet God still reaches in, speaks into that, and goes to the cross and drinks the cup that we deserve. It's outrageous that God would do this for us. And as we come to Jesus, as we believe on Jesus, in him we will escape. In him we'll be delivered from the day of judgment that will come for all. And that's what we see how Obadiah finishes. We, we get a glimpse of that in verse 17. On Mount Zion will be deliverance. In Jesus there'll be deliverance. Now, how Obadiah finishes is he finishes with the fact that basically God's people will live in the land. And then the key verse at the end there is 21, when we see that the kingdom will be the Lord's, right? That the, the book started with the sovereign Lord speaking and it ends with the fact that the kingdom will be God's. 
This is God's word to us. This is the message to us. The sovereign God is speaking to us here this morning. The kingdom is God. Sin is offensive. God will judge the world. And only in Jesus can we escape. Only in Jesus can we be delivered. This is a fresh reminder, a harsh reminder, but a fresh reminder of the reality of why this is important and why we can't be ignorant of this fact. So so if you are here this morning and if you're not a Christian, I mean, we love having you here. We hope you feel welcome, but we hope you can see the importance of this. We hope you can see why Christianity really matters. God will judge the world and only in Jesus can we escape. There's no other way. God loves you. He cares for you. He wants you to trust in him. Come trust in him. Today's the day. I mean, today's the day of God's grace and patience and love. We have this chance this morning. So let's take this chance. And if that's you here this morning, talk to someone about it, who you came with, or find someone to talk to about that. Because it's really important. We can't be ignorant of this. But if we are here this morning, and if we are a Christian, then again, we need to see the reality of what Obadiah is talking about. Sin is serious. It's offensive. God will judge the world. Only in Jesus can we escape. And so we need to deeply hold on to this truth. We can't let go of it. But equally so, we've got to go out and herald this truth. Later on in the Bible, in 2 Peter, God's people are kind of wrestling with, when's this day coming? When the, when's the day of the Lord coming? And, and, God, and Peter says this to the church, he says, you know what, like a day to God is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Basically saying to God that for God, um, time doesn't matter. Right? For God, he's sort of outside of time. But then he says this about the day of the Lord. In verse 9 of 2 Peter 3, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. God will judge the world. He's not slow in doing that as some people understand slowness. But he's patient. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Let's hold on to the deep realities we see in Obadiah. But let's remember too that while God's patience is so overwhelmingly good, it's not everlasting. And so let's take this message, let's hold on to this message, because while we're still here, God is doing stuff. God is saving people. While we haven't yet gone to the day of judgment, the reality is we hear it here in 2 Peter. God is being patient because he wants to save people. And that's a bold thing. That's a good thing for us to hold on to. So, So let's hear once again what Obadiah says. Sin is serious. God will judge the world. But only in Jesus can we escape. It's a fresh reminder. I felt that this week in Obadiah. But it's a deep reality that we've got to live by. Let's pray. God, please help us in a world of distractions and in a world where we're told all the time that money and school and everything else matters more. We pray that we'd come back to these deep realities that ultimately matter more than anything else. Help us feel this. Help us see this. Help us know the weight. And help us enjoy and live in the goodness that comes in Jesus, who drank that bitter cup, 
who went to the cross despite the fact that I am deeply sinful. Help us hold on to this this week. Help us live in this this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.